I'm Scott Aniel, and you're listening to By the Waters of Babylon, a podcast dedicated to discussion of Christianity in a post-Christian culture. I recently made a statement online that received a lot of positive feedback, but also some negative as well. I said this, Don't give in and watch The Chosen. Your imagination will forever be shaped by the visceral potency of a cinematic interpretation of biblical narratives, and it will therefore be much more difficult to allow the words of Scripture to shape your imagination. God gave us words. Although addressing a contemporary issue of the show The Chosen, which is a show produced by VidAngel that follows the life of Christ, the underlying issues here are actually very important for us to grasp and have a lot of implications about images of Christ, movies of Christ, pictures of Christ, specifically, as well as how we ought to learn and grow in our knowledge of Christ more generally. That is the topic I'd like to address in this podcast today, giving a more full explanation of why you should not watch The Chosen, why you should not use visual images to learn and grow in your knowledge of Jesus Christ. This is not a new argument. The fundamental reason that we should not have images of Christ, whether it be in children's story Bibles, flannel graph, movies, or whatever, is rooted in the very commandments of God. When God gave the Ten Commandments, the first two address who we ought to worship and how we ought to worship. The first commandment, of course, says, You shall have no other gods before me. The first commandment forbids the worship of any God other than the true and living God. But the second commandment then says, You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. Now, it is often assumed by a lot of Christians, I think, today that the second commandment is merely restating the first commandment. The first commandment forbids worshiping any god other than the true God. And the second commandment, a lot of Christians assume, is simply saying the same thing. Don't worship idols. Don't worship images. However, this is not the case. The second commandment is distinct from the first commandment. The first commandment addresses whom we are to worship. And the second commandment addresses how we are to worship, or specifically how we are not to worship. And again, this is not a new interpretation. This has been the standard Protestant interpretation of the first and second commandments, especially in what we might call the Reformed tradition of John Calvin, the Puritans, and then the particular Baptists in England, which is the heritage of American Baptists, although Baptists in America have certainly strayed in different directions from our particular Baptist forefathers in England. Let me just give you one example from John Calvin. This is from his commentary on Exodus in his discussion of the second commandment. Calvin says this, In the first commandment, after he had taught who was the true God, he commanded that he alone should be worshipped. And now, he's talking about the second commandment, he defines what is his legitimate worship. Now, since these are two distinct things, we conclude that the commandments are also distinct. 
in which different things are treated. The former, indeed, proceeds in order, namely, that believers are to be contended with one God, but it would not be sufficient for us to be instructed to worship him alone unless we also knew the manner in which he would be worshipped. Calvin continues, The sum is that the worship of God must be spiritual, in order that it may correspond with his nature. For although Moses only speaks of idolatry, yet there is no doubt but that by synecdoche, that is, one idea representing a broader range of ideas, as in all the rest of the law, Calvin says, he condemns all fictitious service which men in their ingenuity have invented. For hence have arisen the carnal mixtures whereby God's worship has been profaned, they that estimate him according to their own reason, and thus in a manner metamorphosize him. In other words, change who God is by representing him through their own ingenuity, particularly in visual images. Calvin continues, It is necessary then to remember what God is, lest we should form any gross or earthly ideas respecting him. The words simply express that it is wrong for men to seek the presence of God in any visible image because he cannot be represented to our eyes. So Calvin's point is, God is a spirit and does not have a body like man. Therefore, God does not want us to represent him in any visual image because when we do so, we are actually changing who God is in our own imagination. And we'll talk about imagination here in a moment. Calvin continues, The command that they should not make any likeness, either of anything which is in heaven or in the earth or in the waters under the earth, is derived from the evil custom which had everywhere prevailed. For since superstition is never uniform, but is drawn aside in various directions, some thought that God was represented under the form of fishes, others under that of birds, others in that of brutes. And history especially recounts by what shameful delusions Egypt was led astray. And hence, too, the vanity of men is declared, since whithersoever they turn their eyes, they everywhere lay hold of the materials of error, notwithstanding that God's glory shines on every side and whatever is seen above or below invites us to the true God. So again, this is the standard position of Reformed Protestantism, that God is a spirit and does not have a body like man, and therefore the second commandment forbids any visible representation of God. And so the response often comes back, well, we're not worshiping the images. We are simply using these images of God, for example, of Christ, for example, to help us to understand God more, to help us to understand Christ more. We're not worshiping these things. But nevertheless, Calvin's argument, and again, the standard argument since the Reformation, has been that to represent God in any of his three persons in a visible representation automatically leads us to a false image of God, and to worship a false image of God. Calvin makes this point. He continues in his commentary, Since therefore men are thus deluded, so as to frame for themselves the materials of error from all things they behold, Moses now elevates them above the whole fabric and elements of the world. 
For by the things that are in heaven above, he designates not only the birds, but the sun and the moon and also the stars, as will soon be seen. He declares then that a true image of God is not to be found in all the world, and hence that his glory is defiled and his truth corrupted by the lie wherever he is set before our eyes in a visible form. Now we must remark that there are two parts in the commandment. The first forbids the erection of a graven image or any likeness. The second prohibits the transferring of the worship which God claims for himself alone to any of these phantoms or delusive shows. Therefore, Calvin says, to devise any image of God is in itself impious, because by this corruption his majesty is adulterated and he is figured to be other than he is. Some expound the words, Calvin says, Thou shalt not make to thyself a graven image which thou mayest adore, as if it were allowable to make a visible image of God, provided it not be adored, which is what I was just talking about. It's okay to make images of God as long as we are not adoring or worshiping the images. But, Calvin says, the expositions which will follow will easily refute their error. Meanwhile, I do not deny that these things are to be taken connectedly, since superstitious worship is hardly ever separated from the preceding error. For as soon as anyone has permitted himself to devise an image of God, he immediately falls into false worship. Hence it comes to pass that those who frame for themselves gods of corruptible materials superstitiously adore the work of their own hands. We can't help it, Calvin is arguing. When we craft an image of God, we cannot help but then superstitiously adore that image. Calvin continues, I will then readily allow these two things which are inseparable to be joined together. Only let us recollect that God is insulted not only when his worship is transferred to idols, but also when we try to represent him by any outward similitude. This is, of course, exactly what happens, ironically, in the same context in the Old Testament with the golden calf. When Moses was on the mountain and they feared that Moses would never come back, the people demanded a physical representation of God, just like the pagans did, which is what Calvin was talking about. This is very common in pagan religion, which is why God, through Moses, was forbidding it. Aaron, of course, complied. He formed a golden calf similar to the practice of both Egypt and Canaan, and the people celebrated in worship in Exodus chapter 32. Now, a lot of Christians assume that the Israelites' problem in that text was one of worshiping a false god, but that's not what they were doing. If you look closely at the text, the text reveals something different. The common assumption is that the Israelites were worshiping a false god, and usually that's because in Exodus chapter 32, most English translations use the term gods. These are your gods, O Israel, the people said. And that is a legitimate translation of the Hebrew term Elohim in the text. The im at the end is plural. This is a plural reference to deity common in the ancient Near East. But we need to remember that that very term in its plural form, Elohim, is also used frequently in the Old Testament to unquestionably refer to Yahweh, the true God. 
And if you look at the text in Exodus chapter 32, it's clear that that is what the people were actually trying to do. They were trying to use the golden calf as an aid to worship the true God. One clear example is what Aaron says in verse 5 when he says, Tomorrow shall be a feast to Yahweh. He uses the covenant name of the Lord there. So clearly the attempt here was to worship the true God through the golden calf. Moses made this fact explicit when he related the event at the end of his life in Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 16. Moses said this, And I looked, and behold, you had sinned against Yahweh Elohim, the Lord your God. You had made yourselves a golden calf. You had turned aside quickly from the way that the Lord had commanded you. So Moses' statement here describes exactly what was wrong with what they did. They didn't disobey the first commandment. Rather, they attempted to show honor to the true God, to show honor and worship to Yahweh by erecting a symbol of strength and nobility in his name, which is what a golden calf was. But this was forbidden in the second commandment. You shall not make for yourself any graven image, meaning you shall not picture God in any visible representation as an aid for you to understand him, to grow in your adoration of him, or to worship him. Now, why is this a case? Well, again, Calvin made this clear. It is because God is a spirit. He does not have a body like man. And any attempt to visualize God will result in a false image of God and therefore, by definition, idolatry. Why? Because our imagination of God is important. Now, when I use that word imagination, I'm not using that word in the way that we commonly do today to mean something like fiction. Our moral imagination is our conception of things, particularly non-visual things like God. Our imagination is the way in which we interpret reality and thus the way in which we make sense of truth. And our imagination is shaped by all sorts of things. And God is saying in the second commandment and really throughout scripture, our imagination of him, our inner conception of who God is, ought to be shaped by the word of God alone, not by any man-made visible representation of God. This is an important point to recognize because I think a lot of people assume that communicating ideas through words and communicating ideas through visual images, whether they be moving images like a TV show or a movie, or printed images like paintings or illustrations in a book, that they're really just doing the same thing, that there's just no difference between communication through words and communication through images. But again, Christians through most of church history have recognized that communicating ideas through words and communicating ideas through images are two fundamentally different things. The Bible is filled with images, but they are word images, parables, poetry, apocalyptic literature, narrative, which is picturesque. All of these things shape our imagination through words, which is different from how images shape the imagination. Jean Edward Veith makes this point in his book, Imagination Redeemed. 
He says, language is precisely what stimulates and feeds the imagination. When we have visual images like pictures or screen images, he explains, that is the production of someone else's imagination. When we read a story, our own internal imagination is at work. That's the difference. So when you watch, for example, The Passion of the Christ or some sort of movie or TV show about Jesus like The Chosen, you are being influenced by someone else's imagination, which is different from when you read the words of Scripture. When you read the words of Scripture, your imagination is being stimulated by those words. You are in your own mind creating an image of God, a conception of God that is being influenced by the words of Scripture, not by someone else's creation. To watch the chosen is to view a graven image. It is to view someone else's imagination of the biblical narratives. And what makes it even worse with the chosen in particular is that we're talking about a Mormon interpretation of the biblical narratives. Or if you were to watch The Passion of the Christ, you are watching a Roman Catholic interpretation of the crucifixion. We must limit ourselves to the words of Scripture. Really, this is an issue of the sufficiency of Scripture. Do we really believe that Scripture is enough to shape our conception of who God is? Because this is exactly what we see often in these discussions of the value of watching a show like The Chosen, for example. Oh, this helps me grow in my knowledge of Christ. This brings the Bible to life. Well, do we really believe that the Bible is sufficient? Or are we dependent upon, dare I say, worshiping these visual images of Christ? I'd like to conclude with the words of J.I. Packer on this point, because again, this argument that I am making is not new. In 1973, J.I. Packer wrote his classic now book, Knowing God. I dare say a lot of the people defending watching The Chosen are some of the same people who would say Knowing God is a very important and powerful book in the life of the church. Well, in chapter 4, Packer treats this issue of the second commandment and images of Christ and the very subject of idolatry. This is what J.I. Packer said. What does the word idolatry suggest to your mind? Savages groveling before a totem pole? Cruel-faced statues in Hindu temples? The devilish dance of the priests of Baal around Elijah's altar? These things are certainly idolatrous in a very obvious way. But we need to realize that there are more subtle forms of idolatry as well. Look at the second commandment. It runs as follows. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. What is this commandment talking about? Packer asks, and he proceeds to make a very similar argument to Calvin. Packer continues, If it stood alone, it would be natural to suppose that it refers to the worship of images of God other than Jehovah, the Babylonian idol worship, for instance, 
which Isaiah derided, or the paganism of the Greco-Roman world of Paul's day, of which he wrote in Romans 1, 23, and 25, that they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. He continues, but in its context, the second commandment can hardly be referring to this sort of idolatry, for if it were, it would simply be repeating the thought of the first commandment without adding anything to it, the argument that I've been making. Packer continues, accordingly, we take the second commandment as in fact it has always been taken, as pointing us to the principle that, to quote Charles Hodge, and now he's quoting Hodge here, Idolatry consists not only in the worship of false gods, but also in the worship of the true God by images. In its Christian application, Packer says, this means that we are not to make use of visual or pictorial representations of the triune God or of any person of the Trinity for the purposes of Christian worship. The commandment thus deals not with the object of our worship, but with the manner of it. What it tells us is that statues and pictures of the one whom we worship are not to be used as an aid to worshiping him. And again, someone might object, well, I'm not worshiping when I watch The Chosen. But Packer continues by showing the dangers of images. He says, It may seem strange at first sight that such a prohibition should find a place among the ten basic principles of biblical religion, for at first sight it does not seem to have much point. What harm is there, we ask, in the worshiper surrounding himself with statues and pictures if they help him to lift his heart to God? And I would argue this is what people say about something like The Chosen. It helps me to understand God. It helps me to understand and love Christ more. Packer then continues by giving specific reasons why images of God or images of Christ are dangerous and harmful. Number one, images dishonor God for they obscure his glory. The heart of the objection to pictures and images is that they inevitably conceal most, if not all, of the truth about the personal nature and character of the divine being they represent. This is exactly why watching a movie or show about Christ is so dangerous. It actually prevents us from understanding the true nature of Christ as he is communicated in the word of God. Packer says, the pathos of the crucifix obscures the glory of Christ, for it hides the fact of his deity, his victory on the cross, and his present kingdom. It displays his human weakness, but it conceals his divine strength. It depicts the reality of his pain, but keeps out of our sight the reality of his joy and his power. In both these cases, the symbol is unworthy, most of all, because of what it fails to display. And so are all other visible representations of deity. Second, Packer says, images mislead us, for they convey false ideas about God. The very inadequacy with which they represent him perverts our thoughts of him and plants in our minds errors of all sorts about his character and will. This is exactly the point I was making online. When we watch The Chosen, it is presenting a false idea about God. 
And again, particularly a Mormon idea about God. But even if it were an evangelical picture, as far as that goes, it is still going beyond the words of Scripture and presenting a false mental image, a false imagination of who God truly is. Packer concludes, the point is clear. God did not show his people a visible symbol of himself, but spoke to them. Therefore, they are not now to seek visible symbols of God, but simply to obey his word. We must trust the sufficiency of the word of God to form our image of who God is. We must not make for ourselves any graven image of God, whether that be a picture of God, any of the triune persons of God, or a moving picture of God. We must trust that the sufficient word is enough to shape our conception of who God is and thereby we worship him according to the image that he has given to us in his sufficient word. As Packer so helpfully says, the mind that takes up with images is a mind that has not yet learned to love and attend to God's word. Those who look to man-made images, material or mental, to lead them to God are not likely to take any part of his revelation as seriously as they should. Thank you for listening to By the Waters of Babylon. Please subscribe on Apple Podcasts or other podcasting services. And if you enjoy the podcast, please give us a five-star rating. You can find me on Twitter at twitter.com slash scottannual. I blog at g3min.org. And for articles, audio, and speaking itinerary, visit scottannual.com. Join me next time as we discuss issues related to Christianity in a post-Christian culture.